This summer, we're going to be uh, working our way through a few stories in the Bible that generally don't see the light of day in places like this because they're quite frankly weird. Maybe strange is a better theological term, but they just don't seem to make sense. And uh, hence the, the series we're doing. But I wanted to just give some of you a little bit of review if you haven't been around here recently or you're new to the church. A few years ago, we did a series called The Story based on a book of the same title. And basically, it, the story is an edited version of the Bible that takes the one narrative, the one storyline from Genesis to Revelation, puts it all together. And so it reads like a novel. The chapters and the verses are eliminated. So you basically are reading 30 chapters of what appears to be a novel. And we had so many folks tell us it makes so much more sense when I can read the entire story from end to end. There's a few nuances of the story that we used, and we're going to repeat those in the summer. And again, I don't want to take too much time explaining them, but again, for those of you that are new, there's three different positions we're going to be speaking from each Sunday. First of all, uh, this spot right here, uh, chair, table, lamp, is called the, the lower story. I'm sorry, that's, this is our story. That's the lower story. That uh, podium right there. The lower story is basically the view of what's happening in the story. Those are the details of the story. We're going to read a story about snakes today. Any of you snake fans? And so the snake story we'll be, we'll be discussing from that platform. Then that higher platform is called the upper story. And again, I, I'm always a little hesitant going to that point and trying to represent God's perspective because uh, I have somewhat of a finite perspective on life, somewhat imperf imperfect, but we're going to try to look at the story from God's perspective. Maybe look at it theologically. What was God trying to do? What can we learn from God's character in the process? Then, as I began with, is our story, this platform right here. Basically, that's how we apply and where we apply the story. So what you're about to do is apply a story about a bunch of snakes into your own lives. Hopefully that will really work for you, okay? The series title is called The Story, Stranger Things. And as Chuck, John, and myself got together and started you know, figuring out what we wanted to do and why, we, we really began to grapple with the, the stories we're going to share and then recognize that God is at work in every one of these weird stories, these strange stories. And for every one of us here, there have been those moments in our lives where we couldn't put two and two together. We thought, boy, this is odd, this is strange. What in the... God is at work even in those unexpected moments of our lives, and hopefully some of those moments will have some clarity after we talk in these few weeks. This is the key passage that we wanted to focus on for the summer. Again, it puts us in our place and elevates God to his rightful place. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Just stare at that, read it a couple of times, because so often I think we, uh, we create God in our image rather than remembering we were created in his. And so we like to try to believe we can understand God's perspective when in fact it's so far beyond us, quite frankly, and that's an important facet to this. 
The passage of the day is Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. And John Graham has volunteered to read the passage for us this morning. So if you're able to, we'd like you to stand, face the middle of the room. It's what we do here because it symbolizes that Scripture is central to who we are as a church, and hopefully it's central to who you are as a follower of Jesus. John, when you're ready, from Numbers 21. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. They said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. People came to Moses and said, We've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take these snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and will live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Thanks a lot, John. Have a seat. Isn't that a cool story? Read this to your kids for bedtime. This is what God will do to you. Um, In the outline, it's one of those things, from time to time we use a progressive outline and from week to week there are things added. We keep the things from the previous week. This is one of those series. So there's a number of cultural factors that uh, Chuck in the last couple of weeks explained. It's why perhaps we look at scripture a little differently than uh, the authors wanted to portray it to the original audience. And so take a look at those. If you don't have an outline, now's not the time to go get one. But from now on, you may want to follow along. I wanted to add a few other factors. Um, reasons the Bible seems strange. And again, we don't want that to be a disrespectful term. But more from an upper story, divine perspective, here's a few thoughts. Um, Why the Bible sometimes is a little quirky. God's divine activity at times defies human logic. We agree with that? Secondly, and you may find this hard to believe, but God's intellectual capacity is far beyond our own. Third, God's providence or sovereignty embraces a much broader and eternal perspective. And I really hope, I really hope when I get to heaven, when I get to heaven, I'll have someone explain to me the broader perspective. Because there's just things I don't get. There's, I just don't understand it this side of heaven. I I hope and pray someday I will. So, um, this is a story about snakes. Any, any snake fans in the room? I know some of you are a little weird, too. I, I understand. You know, I was a little kid, elementary school, my grandpa's farm in southern Illinois, and he raised corn, but his cash crop was gladiolas, those tall flowers. And he used to walk down the aisles of the cornfield around harvest time, and it felt like one long, narrow hallway, you know, with the corn, see, second grade Brian. And every once in a while, a big bull snake would pull out right in front of my path. And, I mean, to a second grader, it looked like an anaconda. And I, I don't know where I developed fear of snakes. I'm sure it's part of the human condition. But I'll never forget those big bull snakes. I've yet to see a rattlesnake in Idaho since I moved here many, many moons ago. And again, don't any of you twisted souls put one in my office just to prove a point. But I've been walking the canyons and the paths of the desert a long time. I have never seen a, a 
a venomous snake, a rattlesnake yet. And I don't, I don't care if I ever do, kind of. But then I'm trying to imagine this scene, this story, where God is responsible. And again, scholars have dissected this story, believe me, through the years. Um, were they snakes indigenous to the area that were passive and then became aggressive? You know, passive aggressive, some of you struggle with that issue as well. Or were these snakes, the fiery serpents, literally, were they a certain color or give, when they bit, give a certain level of pain? There's, there's a scholarship, the rabbis were all over the charts on what they believed the snakes to be. But for whatever reason, and we're gonna study the reasons, snakes appeared and became very aggressive. And I want you to picture your next hike on a path in the desert with aggressive rattlesnakes that are willing to come out of the shadows and chase you down just to bite your heel. Ooh, okay? That's really what we're talking about. Um, let me go to, this is the lower story. And again, what we do when we come here is we talk about some of the details, some of the principles of the, of the, uh, the narrative, the details of the story. Um, understand, by the time we get to this story, Israel has been circling the desert for almost 40 years. And what happened, and this is the first point, Israel's long-term desert issue was a habitual distrust of God. Now let me, let me walk you through 40 years in the desert, the abbreviated version. In Exodus 15, right out of the chute, right when they started through the, through the desert of Israel, they asked, what are we gonna drink? There's nothing to drink. And they called them the children of Israel because they sounded often like children. What are we gonna drink? We know you delivered us from Egypt. What are we going to drink? And God gave them water. Exodus 16, what are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? We're hungry. And God provided manna and quail. Boy, did he provide manna and quail. Exodus 17, next chapter again, they'd gone a distance. What are we going to drink? What are we going to drink? And God provided water. Very good. And then we fast forward a little bit to Numbers 14, and now the people start grumbling against Moses and Aaron. They've, they've, just, they've, they've just heard the report of the spies who've scouted out the promised land, and the spies come back and say, hey, listen, the people in the promised land are really big. They're like giants. And we th seem to be like grasshoppers. And collectively, the people of Israel go, woe is me, woe is us and again begin to grumble. Oh, if we could only go back to Egypt, the good old days of Egypt and slavery. What happened at that moment is God said enough. Um, you're not gonna enter the promised land and for the next little less than 40 years, he had them circle the desert as punishment. He said, listen, you don't trust me. Anyone over a certain age that's grumbled, you're not gonna see the promised land. And the natural, natural law of attrition took place and an entire generation died while they still wandered in the desert. If he said that to TFRC because of our grumbling against him, anyone over 20 is never going to see, insert the reference point, everyone over 20 is not gonna make it to the promised land. Imagine we look around the room and say, man, we're losing a lot of folks. And then in Numbers 16, again, Moses and Aaron are challenged 
by a priest named Korah. He raises this insurrection. And God was angered again because they spoke against Moses, but God understood indirectly they were speaking against him. And over 15,000 people died in a wave of death that swept over the nation. And once again, Israel learned the lesson the hard way. In all of those situations, and there's about seven specifically, where the people murmured against God through Moses, they never invoked the name of God. This moment was unique in the story because it said in verse 5, they spoke against God and against Moses. And because they spoke directly to him, they weren't just complaining against Moses, but they were complaining against God himself. And the point is this. They have a legacy and a history of distrusting the God who delivered them and sustained them. Even in that moment where they were so close to the promised land, they didn't believe God could pull it off. And it wasn't the heat, it wasn't their thirst, it wasn't their hunger, it was their lack of trust, it was the lack of faith that God couldn't deliver them again. The second issue for Israel was more of a short-term issue, and that was a situational uncertainty. Uh, so many of us deal with that as well. They had a reason to be concerned. In fact, they had multiple reasons to be concerned. First of all, Moses had just sinned against God at a place called Kadesh. Through the, throughout the desert wanderings, Moses was told to speak to a rock, point his staff at a rock, and water would gush out. This last time, uh, the people are kvetching, they're grumbling, they're complaining, and instead of obeying God and speaking to the rock, holding out his staff, he struck the rock. And I can imagine he was about done listening to the Israelites' complaints. But God said, you can't do that. Even though it was one momentary act, you disobeyed. And God said, Moses, you're, you're not going to enter the promised land. You'll see it from afar, but you're not going to get there. And as the people, and I can hear the rumors swell throughout the children of Israel, that Moses would not be allowed entrance to the promised land. Well, who's going to lead then? Well, what about Aaron? Aaron dies at a place called, called Mount Hor. And so Aaron's out of the picture. And then they are just a breath away from entering the promised land. And all they had to do is hang a, hang a left and go directly north through the tribe of Edom. Let me show you this picture, a map, just a minute. Edomite king is the problem. We'll get back to him. You can see that they were up to Arad and Hormah. They're back down to Mount Hor, but now they wanted to go directly through Edom, but the king of Edom wouldn't allow them direct access to the promised land. He said, you're not going through this territory. You're not going through our tribal land. And, and so they were forced to go back into the desert, and eventually they, you can see that arrow shows they went around Edomite territory, but they were forced to go directly back into the desert. And so you had Moses and Aaron and the Edomite king, and the desert we may think of Jerome, Idaho. It's not like that. It's much harsher. Uh, just a few pictures in different areas of the Negev desert. It's harsh. It's stark. It's, it can be 120 by day and 40 degrees by night. How do you pack a suitcase for that vacation? Take a look at the desert. More time in the desert. I thought we just lost a generation in the desert. What's going to happen to us? It's a crisis on top of a crisis. 
And isn't it true sometimes in our lives, in those desert moments, that's what seems to happen. Um, so, that's the narrative, that's the story. Now let me just bring it down and, and apply it a little bit, a couple points. And obviously the reason we're doing this series is so we can sit in this chair again, because it's so relaxing. But I, I, have, I, I see more of you, and it feels a little more intimidating because you're at eye level, quite frankly. Now, we've talked about stranger things. These are the familiar things from the story. And honestly, the, the parallel between their story and our story is pretty striking. And just two points here. With adversity comes the loss of our perspective. I want you to take a look at that one and reflect back to the last time something went south for you. Something went wrong. Now, the Israelites are forced to head south into the desert again. And the response is, but we've, we don't have any bread. There's no bread. There's no water. It's a classic overstatement, classic overreaction. That's how we respond often in the desert. We lose track of the truth and, and the real perspective. Um, ever lost perspective in the midst of your desert moments? Hey, we, we've been on vacation for, it seems like, about a year and a half, and we're, we're glad you let us come back and speak today. Um, I was in southern Michigan a week ago, had an appointment in uh, southwestern Michigan, about an hour, 45 minutes north and west. And so we rely on what you rely on in your vacation, and that is our GPS. Just plug in the number. You know, we had a destination, tells you where you're at, how much time before you get there. Piece of cake. Only... We began this trip, we needed to head northwest, but I knew it was along, you know, there were highways we'd be taking, et cetera, et cetera. But evidently, the GPS lined us up with the shortest route. And I don't know if you've ever taken shortest routes, but they're often not quickest routes. And so this is exactly what happened. We went north and west, 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 north and west. I, I, no, no joke, a dozen times we went north and west, directly north, directly west. We were going through small towns I never heard of in southwest Michigan. We were going through back streets of little, little towns, and, and I'm, I'm falling apart. All the while watching my GPS, which says we're still going to make our appointment, or they've got that time to destination. And my wife is a woman of faith, and she's a lot steadier uh, than I am. And she said, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. And I'm sweating, and, and we're only going to meet a friend at 11.30 in the morning. It's not like we have this mega meeting. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just being truthful. I was complaining and whining the whole trip because they were taking it. It's stupid, and it's silly, but I lost perspective. Now give me an illness and watch what I do. Or, or let things be tight financially. You, you know what I'm saying. And, and part of this story is how the people of God got lost, not only in the desert, but in their perspective. The second thought is this, that faith often fades when detours interfere with our hopes and dreams. It's related to the first. The promised land was literally right up ahead. They had wandered in the desert for 40 years, and we're here, we're here. Oh, we're not here. We're not here. We're going south, literally, figuratively. And the detour interfered with those hopes and dreams. And see, the problem with that is often for us, faith is, a, is an experiment more than it is an expectation. 
I'm going to give this a shot, this God thing. You may be here thinking about that. I'm going to give this God thing one more shot. But if you don't deliver, I'm out of here. Instead, the people, after 40 years of watching God fulfill his promises and deliver over and over and over and over again, this last time they just can't quite do it. And I think that's reminiscent of people like us. Um, What do we do when something for which we've hoped and prayed and labored recedes farther and farther into the distance? How does that affect our faith? Again, financially, or in terms of health, or in terms of relationship, or in terms of occupation or jobs. Um, What do you do? Anyway, picture those folks, 40 years wandering, they were so close, but they weren't gonna get there. A lot of the stranger thing dynamics of this story are from the upper story. And again, don't want to mischaracterize God, don't want to, you know, uh, assume too much of myself and my opinions and interpretations. But a lot of the strange things happen from this perspective, looking at it from God's perspective. First, the fact that he would use snakes is almost strange enough. We could just say, you know, drop the mic and be done with it. But the first stranger thing is that there was a huge idol potential in the use of the bronze snake. Now, remember one of the, ten, one of the first Ten Commandments is you don't ever construct anything that has potential to be used in the future as an idol. It's Exodus 24, specifically. You shall not make for yourself an, an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters below, etc., etc. God forbids the making of anything that could be construed or evolve into an idol, but then he commands Moses to construct on a pole something that obviously has idolatrous potential. Now, what's with that? And and not only that, over the next generations, that bronze snake did become an idol. Now, this is not the rest of the story. We're not going there. But the fact is that the people of God took this bronze snake and eventually it turned from a symbol to an icon to something to be venerated and worshipped. It was idolatrous what happened with that snake. And eventually under the reign of King Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18, King Hezekiah mentions this snake, uh, this bronze snake on a pole. He had it destroyed, pulverized, because it had become the source of idolatry. Could something so good become something so horrific when it was commanded by God to be constructed? The bronze snake, I would submit, was a test for the people of Israel in the desert and for generations later when things were going well, they were in the promised land reminding them of their own frailty and the subtleties of something so good becoming something so evil. But again, it raises the question, why would God do that? The second stranger thing is the extreme punishment of God towards Israel in this moment. One of the most difficult questions that this passage leads us to is discussing the character of God. Who, Who is the God you worship? Who would you prefer him to be? We love the God of love and of kindness and compassion. You've heard the term love wins, and we'd all love to believe that's the nature of God. And yet, alongside of all of that, which is all true, if God is going to be merciful and forgiving, he's got to be just. And this is the story of the justice of God. 
the anger of God towards people who were disobedient. Now, early on in God's call to the people of Israel in Exodus 19, he says, listen, if you're going to be my people, I want you to be holy. I want you to be set apart. You're gonna be for me like a kingdom of priests, which means you're gonna be obedient to the commands that I give you. In the New Testament, in, in 2 Peter, the same thing, that Peter says, you are going to be to me, he says to the church, he says to us, like a kingdom of priests, holy, set apart. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy, is the word of Scripture. And a lot of times we'll slough off the expectations of a holy and righteous God, believing more so in his grace and expecting more his grace. But this is the story of the justice of God, of that extreme punishment that we can never forget is, any, is to anyone who's disobedient, rather anyone ultimately who refuses to receive Jesus as well. The third strange thing from the upper story is the parallel between the bronze snake and the cross. And this is the one that's intriguing. It's more profound, perhaps. But Jesus references this story, and he makes a parallel to his own death and resurrection. Now, let me ask you this. Here's a Bible quiz moment of the day. How many of you know John 3.16? Have you ever heard of John 3.16? Okay, I'm being semi-facetious here, but you know the verse... For God so loved the world, whatever your translation, whatever you grew up with. Okay, you know that verse. Now, do you know what the verses, there's two verses, that's John 3.16. Do you know what John 3.14 and John 3.15 are? You ever read those verses? I know some of you have, but it's, it's kind of cool because it, it just doesn't seem, it, this is just kind of bizarre. Take a look. John 3, 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him, for God so loved the world. He connects his own lifting up, does Jesus, with the lifting up of the bronze snake. The bronze snake becomes the metaphor for the saving grace of Jesus. And he clearly makes the parallel, referring to his crucifixion, where just as the power of death was conquered by Jesus' sacrifice, as was the power of death conquered by the snake. The rabbis said of this passage, of the Old Testament passage, it wasn't about looking up at, it wasn't about seeing the snake. It was the act of lifting up, raising up their eyes to God. That was the fundamental part of the equation. And so lifting up and focusing and fixing our eyes on God and on Jesus become part of the significant thread of Scripture coming out of this passage. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up in the last day. And then in, in Hebrews, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the power and perfecter of faith. You can um, derive a number of conclusions out of the passage, but for me and for us this morning, I'd like to suggest 
that it's about lifting up our eyes and focusing on Jesus. We have a cross in front of the room. It's never become, I shouldn't say that. It's an overstatement. For some, it's become an idol instead of a symbol. And let's never confuse the two. We don't worship the cross. The cross symbolizes what happened, and we worship a God who offered us the sacrifice of his son. But let me ask you today, um, when you're in the desert moments, in the desert seasons of your life, uh, where do you look? To whom or what do you focus on? To what do you fix your eyes upon? I think often because of our relative success in life, self-assurance, self-sufficiency, we tend to look in the mirror. I can handle this. I'm pretty much all that. I've done it before. I can do it again. I'm self-sufficient. I think it's tempting to look in the mirror and believe we can do it. Or, or we may look at others and say, you know, I need some help here. But do we fix our eyes? Do we lift up our eyes, as the psalmist says, to the hills from where our help comes from? Our help comes from the Lord. Last time you needed help, where did you look for help? Um, this probably isn't even relevant to this passage, but I went to a couple Cubs games last week. And I don't know if you've been to Wrigleyville lately. I, I, I called it a pilgrimage, probably inappropriately, but man, it felt like that for me. I hadn't been to, to Wrigley Field in 40 years. And I was two last time I was there, just if you're doing the math. Um, <laughs> but I'm telling you, it, was, it wasn't worship, but it was close. You know what I mean? I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Chicago Cubs won the world championship a year ago after over a hundred years. That's a century. Some of you weren't even born then when they won at last. And I'm telling you, we won on Tuesday night and we sang, go Cubs, go. And I got emotional because I trust in those Cubs. I believe in those Cubs. I live for those Cubs. Now, you know where I'm going. Again, silly illustration. The Cubs this year are mediocre at best. The Milwaukee Brewers are in first place. Pastor Chuck's team is in first place. He's impossible to live with. I understand, I can put all the faith I want in the Chicago Cubs, but from one year to the other, it may be pitching, it may be hitting, it may be defense. I can't trust them. I hope that's obvious. And I wonder how often we look to others and look to places, placing more trust than we really should. And, and I just wonder how often we truly trust God for the solution, for the resolution, for the healing. We go to Jesus. I was also in northern Minnesota a couple weeks ago doing some fishing in the Boundary Waters canoe area right at the Canadian border. And... Uh, a bunch of us friends and relatives. Tim Rotwin, by the way, says hi. He was fishing. He's an ex-pastor from TFRC. We were fishing together. And about 11 o'clock one night, three of us were still awake when we looked up and we saw the Aurora Borealis. If you've ever seen that, it, they're called Northern Lights. And it's like, and I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It's like God has a kaleidoscope or a a flashlight and he's pointing it down and the lights are changing and they're changing colors and they're shooting through the sky. It's honestly, it's, it's a strange thing. 
And three of us grown adults stood there, and I'm not exaggerating, for 30 minutes. It was unbelievable, and the opportunity I may never have again in my life. And it was in the light of this passage I was thinking what lifting up my eyes meant that night. And watching the majesty of creation, of God's creation. And if I could be so enamored with the majesty of the cross and what Jesus did for me there, would it change the way not only I walk through the desert moments, but the way I walk through the promised land moments, when I've pretty much got it all together, when things are going well, which describes many of us this morning. The story of the snakes on the plane is the story of where we look and why, and trusting God again or for the first time that he can deliver and sustain and redeem and heal. If you've never looked to the cross before in the person of Jesus, I'd certainly invite you this morning to consider it, to do it. Believe in him. Believe in the promises he makes, both for time and eternity. For the rest of us, you never know. You never know how much we really need Jesus. And I would argue more than we think we do as we go through the difficult times or go through the good times. Uh, it's a strange story, but God is at work there and God is at work here in ways we might never fully understand this side of heaven. His ways are not our ways, and our thoughts are not his thoughts, but he's ready to carry us through. You believe that? I, I sure hope so. Let's pray together. Father, we see our story paralleling and weaving through this strange story from Numbers 21. And while the snakes on a plane provided imminent death, and while the situations of our life from time to time might seem overwhelming and insurmountable, we know that you're always there to deliver. Whether a bronze snake on a pole or whether the cross of Jesus, we know that your design is not only that of justice, but of mercy and grace. And so, Lord, just teach us how to trust you more in good times and in bad, and allow us to celebrate how you care for us, your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.